0: We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing. Three, Not because they are easy, two, but because they are hard. KFI of I presents Liptoff. We have a lift off. Cool Space
1: News. With your host, Rod Pyle. Hello and welcome to Cool Space News. This week's news has been rife with mention of the uncontrolled reentry of the Chinese space station Tiangong-1, their first orbital platform. It was launched in 2011 and visited by three Chinese spacecraft, one robotic supply mission, and two crewed Shenzhou spacecraft. Then the mission was supposed to have ended, but the Chinese space agency admitted in 2016 that they'd lost contact with and control over the Tiangong station. We now expect it to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere sometime on or about Easter Sunday. It is not known exactly where the station will enter the atmosphere, nor where parts of it might impact the ground. We do know that it will be somewhere between 43 degrees north and 43 degrees south of the equator, though that covers by far the largest population parts of the planet, so that's not a whole lot of comfort. There is, however, a 70% or better chance that it will come down the ocean since most of the Earth is covered in water, so there's that. That's a plus. By late Saturday evening, we should have a better idea of when and where it'll be re-entering. And if you want to keep track of the latest information on this, go to either the National Space Society's Facebook page or space.com. Both will have frequent updates. But, you know, it's my job to keep you informed here on KFI, no passing the buck for me. So to get a better idea of whether or not the sky is truly falling, I spoke to Jeff Notkin. Jeff's an expert on meteorites and other things cosmic and gained fame as one of the meteorite men on the Science Channel. Jeff, thanks for joining me today. I really appreciate
0: it. My pleasure, Rod. Greetings.
1: So let's talk a little bit about Tiangong, because uh, the media has been kind of waffling between not quite sure what to do with the story and the sky is falling, the sky is falling. So we have the first Chinese space station that went up in 2011. Uh, And it's not, uh, I think a lot of people equate this with things like Skylab and Mir, and it's not. It's only about a tenth the mass of Skylab and much less that of Mir. It's very small. Not a whole lot bigger, actually, than the capsule that docks with it, which is uh, interesting. And uh, unfortunately, after being launched in 2011 and visited uh, three times, twice by crewed spacecraft, the Chinese space agency admitted they lost control over it in 2016, and it's now in a slow tumble. So we have something about to fall from the sky. And because you are the guy that knows all about things that fall from the sky, I thought this would be a perfect opportunity to chat. So what are your thoughts?
0: Well, thank you, Rod. I appreciate that. And for your listeners, we should probably clarify that my area of expertise is is non-man-made things that fall from the sky. But come on, it's pretty similar, right? We're, we're talking about dense objects falling from the cosmos onto Earth. And so, as, as you know, I'm I'm a meteorite specialist and I'm fascinated by falling space debris. And I've seen quite a few satellites re enter. And an interesting thing, I wonder if you know this, Rod. I, I get so many uh, inquiries from people who've seen fireballs. Like, oh, I saw this big burning thing in the sky and it landed right over there. We got to go find the meteorites. And <laughs> yeah. so, as you probably know, this, the, I'm sure you know this. That when we see something burning in the sky, uh, it's it's known as a meteor, and if it lands, it hits the surface of the Earth, it becomes a meteorite. And the the period of, the, of incandescence, when when ablation is occurring, and we see this fantastic fireball or shooting star, that happens pretty far up in the atmosphere. So when when people see this the phenomenon of of a streak of light that seems to crash near them on the horizon it's actually arcing over the horizon it's probably a hundred miles away or more and this was so beautifully demonstrated by the chelyabinsk fireball over the city of russia in 2013 because we saw that long trail of the of the meteor coming in and some of that footage was from almost a hundred miles away so you really can see them from far away but the bit that intrigues me is well, I get these reports from people like, oh, it was red, it was white, it was blue, it was green, whatever. And if you see a green fireball, it may be man-made satellite debris burning up because of the copper wiring mm-hmm. board, because copper often burns green. And I've seen a couple of those. But to to specifically answer your question, I'm very excited, of course, because in my work, we never know when the meteorite's going to land. There, there are only a couple of instances where we've had a a very small heads up that something was spotted on the telescope coming towards Earth. So virtually all meteorite events are a surprise to everyone involved, especially if it land's near you. So here we've got a heads up that something's going to happen. And yeah, it's man-made, but it's still going to be a fireball. And we're still going to have debris on the ground, probably, most likely. So if it's nearby, you can believe I'll be out there with my metal detector. I'd, I'd love to have some satellite debris in my meteorite collection. That's just it's, – it's, it's representing all areas. We've got man-made stuff, and we've got not extraterrestrial, not made man-made. So, yeah, I'm all for it, as long as nobody gets injured, of course.
1: Well, and, and do bear in mind it's, it's probably going to be either containing a small amount or coated with a small amount if it survives the plunge of hydrazine, which is not something you want to lick or touch. And uh, it belongs to China, so they're going to come get it from you. I'm willing <laughs> so to brilliant.
0: trade. The Chinese have got some good meteorites that I'd be happy to have. <laughs> in my collection. All in the interests of international diplomacy and cooperation, of course.
1: So this thing is 9.5 tons, but it was built as a spacecraft, so they're built light and, and fairly delicate. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on how much of this might actually survive the plunge, because I think that's, that's the big question in the minds of most people, Indeed. if they're worried about it at all.
0: Let me make some comparisons. So as, as you well know, the Tiangong is, is less than 10 tons. And when Mir fell in 2001, that was really something to be concerned about because that was 143 tons. I think a better comparison is the Salyut 7 Russian station that crashed to earth in 1991. Mm-hmm. And that was 20 tons. So roughly twice the size of the Chinese hardware. And Salyut broke up over the Pacific Ocean and pieces landed in the water and in Australia. And a a very admired friend and colleague of mine, a champion gold prospector named Peter Heidelar, who's also a meteorite specialist, found a titanium fuel cell in the Australian outback, most likely part of Salyut 7. And it was identified as as being from a Russian station. And we know that some of Salyut fell in Australia, so, so odds are pretty good. That's what it is. And it's a titanium sphere. It's about maybe twice the size of a bowling ball. It's so heavy. He showed it to me. I handled it. Huh. And on one face, so it's this, it's this, it's this matte silver-gray metallic sphere, super heavy, and one side is completely melted where it hurtled through the atmosphere, becoming a man-made meteorite. And the thing that really fascinated me about that fuel cell is we looked at it with a microscope, looked at it with a loop, not a microscope, and its surface was covered with tiny craters, mic- micro meteorite impacts from being up in space. So oh. there's proof that things, there's a lot going on up there. You leave something in space for long enough, it's going to get hit by little teeny pieces of cosmic debris. And and they are these minute craters, smaller than the head of a pin with a splash rim and everything. They were fantastic. So my point is, a a twenty ton space station or satellite that fell in 1991 dropped some pretty significant pieces on the ground. So that's perhaps the best model we have to to compare. I suppose it's realistic to say, well, probably maybe about half that amount of stuff would fall on Earth, and it depends on a lot of factors. It depends on on the on the entry speed and which is is estimated to be about seventeen, thousand miles an hour, which is really fast and uh, comparable to an, an maybe an average and approximate entry speed for for potential meteorites okay so the, I think the biggest difference that we have to consider here is when we have we have a a big chunk of an asteroid what what what, what, what one might describe as a natural potential meteorite. It counters Earth's atmosphere. It's superheated. Everyone always thinks, well, it's the friction. It's actually a combination. So yes, there's friction caused by hitting the atmosphere that quickly, but it's also atmospheric pressure. Because if you throw something at the Earth at 17,000 miles an hour, it compresses the air ahead of it. Right. And as we all know, pressure generates heat. So, so an incoming meteorite compresses a column of air in front of it as it's hurtling towards the Earth, and the atmosphere slows it down. And there comes a point where the, the ablation and the melting, the burning stops, and it just falls, according to normal acceleration due to gravity, which is why most meteorites, when they hit the surface of our planet, they're traveling at two or 300 miles an hour. So, unfortunately, the scene in Armageddon when the burning meteorites hit Grand Central Station, that's just not accurate. Sorry. I'm really sorry to disappoint you, <laughs> much as I love that film. The science, no. let's be diplomatic. Science is a little iffy. In Armageddon, it doesn't mean I don't love the movie. Yeah. It's a ton of fun. Okay. So so, so we've got this. There's, go ahead. Sorry, let me add, let me add one more thing. Sure. There's one really important distinction, and that is we've got a chunk of an asteroid burning through our atmosphere. It's pretty dense. Most meteorites are iron or silicate or a silicate and iron combination. So you've got a dense rock traveling through our atmosphere and the enormous, the rapid change in temperature. Think about this. It's been in in deep space. at something fairly close to absolute zero for perhaps millions of years. And then it hits our atmosphere and it gets superheated to thousands of degrees Fahrenheit in a few seconds, rapid temperature change. That's why so many incoming potential meteorites explode. That combined with the pressure that they're suddenly subjected to of, of compressing the atmosphere. So, That's what happens to meteorites. And that's a dense, solid mass in most cases. So if you then take those physical effects and stresses and put them on a comparatively fragile man-made ship that has spaces in it and wiring and welds and all kinds of joints, my guess is it's probably going to explode. It's going to rip apart into, into loads of pieces. So the... I'm not. I don't expect it to land in a big smoking Hulk somewhere. It'll it'll probably break up into a variety of pieces, and the material that's heavier and denser is more likely to survive and make it to Earth. Hence, as ably demonstrated by the salient fuel cell that my friend found, it was almost undamaged, it, apart from the face that had melted. Okay, and that
1: and that was kind of the at the core of my question. So we've got this this thing that's. 34 by 11 feet, so roughly the size of a of a truck or a school bus, which is already tumbling. So it'll hit the atmosphere at a tumble and would probably start tumbling anyway. And as you pointed out, it's hollow. It's made from aluminum and possibly some titanium. Very thin, very light. And the only thing I've read about that they know, at least from what they've been able to find in the design, they being Western uh, journalists, uh, is the mass of the rocket engine. And perhaps a couple of other items, but but nothing radioactive as far as anybody knows, although there could be. And uh, like you say, maybe fuel cells and smaller bits. But it seems like most of it is probably going to break up. But one thing I, I, I did wonder, and you, you kind of answered it, but I didn't realize that the speed of impact was that high. Um, and by the time one of these pieces gets to the ground, what would the temperature be as well?
0: Well, that's a really interesting Phenomenon that we see with meteorites. So, whenever someone contacts us and, and they've got a fake story, and they go, oh, "I found a meteorite in my yard. It must be worth a million dollars." And believe me, this happens all the time. They often say, "Yeah, it was burning hot. It, it sat there for three days, and it was glowing white and hot." No, it wasn't. That doesn't happen. So, the the superheating phase of a, of a meteor's flight occurs high in the atmosphere, maybe seven to fifteen miles. And the closer it gets to Earth, the more dense the atmosphere is, so it slows down. And when it begins to slow down and, and the ablation and the incandescent period ends, the air is still very cold up there. So this material that's been superheated to a few thousand degrees, it's got some time to cool while it's falling. And that period is called dark flight. So the flame, the the the, the beautiful trail ablation trail that we see from a shooting star that's ended and then the period where it falls to earth is called dark flight and that might be with lucky land slots you can get lucky just about anywhere
1: dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom sorry sorry we're here we were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time
0: no lucky land casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry in that case, I pronounce you lucky.
1: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See
0: website for details. A few minutes. That could be two or three minutes if it's falling from 7, 12, 15 miles up. So the very few people who have seen a meteorite land actually witnessed an impact and gone up right up to it and found it immediately. The majority of those reports say that the rock was cold to the touch and in a couple of instances even had frost visible mm-hmm. on it. Mm-hmm. So this idea that that small to medium sized meteorites are burning and molten when they land is just not true. The, the one exception to that might be a giant meteorite like the size of something that made Meteor Crater, Canyon Diablo in northern Arizona, such a massive iron meteorite. Would probably just punch right through the Earth's atmosphere and it 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 wouldn't it wouldn't experience any deceleration. But all the meteorites that we've witnessed as humans in all of history, there's never been a burning hot one that's landed. And they're, they're often apocryphal stories related to meteorite sightings like, oh, it started this giant giant forest fire, it burned down a barn, and the horses had to escape no, that wasn't a meteorite. That was some kid with a blowtorch.
1: No, that was your countryman H.G. Wells <laughs> telling us what it was going to be
0: I read that <laughs> book. rascals. Yeah. <laughs> so I wouldn't expect any of this material to be hot when it lands. And also think about there. There's, there's aluminum sheeting and there's wires and there's probably light stuff. And we have definitely seen when we've studied meteorite falls where multiple pieces fell at the same time, we have Definitely noticed that wind affects the fall pattern of smaller meteorites and even some larger ones that are that are flattage, that are say plate shaped. We found when we've been studying strewn fields, and a strewn field is a zone where a, a lot of pieces of the same meteorite have fallen at approximately the same time, we see a distribution. So surprisingly, the little pieces fall first, and the larger pieces that have a little more mass, they go a bit further. And so we see a, a variance, uh, an almost, it's almost sorted by size of meteorites in a fall zone. Now, I don't really expect that to happen with, with the satellite because we're not dealing with a homogenous mass. If we have, a, we have a, an incoming meteoroid, potential meteorite, it breaks up into a thousand pieces, all the 1000 pieces of varying sizes are still made of the same material in most cases that's not going to be the case with tingot. We're going to have we've got all different kinds of materials up there. So some of them may float, any light materials, there's foil or who knows what, little bits of plastic, circuit boards, that kind of thing. They may float for a while and land far away from the other pieces of debris. So the dispersion of fragments could be quite large, especially if it land, if they land in an area where there are strong winds at that time. The wind will definitely affect the fall pattern of smaller pieces.
1: So I've been keeping my eye on the Aerospace Corporation site, and for listeners who want to check that out, just Google Aerospace Corporation and the word Tiangong, uh, T-I-A-N-G-O-N-G, and you'll find they have a very well-worked up... Uh, page uh, their job is to look at this kind of stuff they're a nonprofit that does a lot of work for for government and aerospace and uh, they're keeping a very close eye on this and they're updating it every few hours given what you might have seen there jeff uh, what do you think about the chances of getting some kind of advance notice about when and where this might be entering so we can run outside and try to take a look
0: i'll be very surprised if we don't get if we don't get advance notice There, there have been a couple of instances of of natural meteorites coming from deep space, being observed by astronomers beforehand—in in one case a day in advance or almost a day. So I, Mike, this is this is not my area of expertise per se, but you've got a lot of smart people and a, a lot of technical gear watching and measuring this. So yeah, I I, I think they know what they're doing. We'll probably be able to plot it at some point. It might be, it's coming down in the next half hour. If if you live in southern Idaho, put on a crash helmet. <laughs> not that I'm suggesting it's going right. to fall there. It just That's just, I just I had a vision. In which case, I might have to head up there really quickly with my metal. Oh, attention.
1: wouldn't it be sensational? I mean, I have to confess that I'm one of those people that's kind of hoping it does come down somewhere relatively close. And if it's the West Coast, it would be fine because it'll be heading over to parts of the state that I'm not that fond of. By the time it
0: <laughs> oh, comes over Los Angeles, well,
1: I know, but you know, it gets God. kind of sparse out there, and if uh, a few bits of it end up in Blythe, California, you know, that's okay. Uh, but that's just
0: me. oh, I've I've uh, I've stayed there on uh, on uh, meteorite hunting expeditions. That's one of the uh, <laughs> that's pretty pretty close contender for one of for the highest temperature in the forty eight states is um, not Blythe; it's the town next to it. Anyway, yes, oh, there's Baker. a very interesting Baker. place, Baker. Is it Baker? Baker's the one with the giant mm-hmm. thermometer
1: right at the state line.
0: Yes, yes, yes. I remember that. I've the been there the blistering paint
1: and the boarded up buildings. Yeah. Not, not that I'm, I'm dissing these towns. I mean, I love places. I
0: love no, vampires. no, of course not. Blythe is actually a very colorful place. And I once stayed there with a visiting photographer friend, a British photographer who was over. And he wanted to go on a big road trip with me. And he said, Jeff, let's. Go. I want to see some weird Americana. The weirder, the better. Yeah. And I said, that will not be a problem in the Southwest. And so we stayed at Blythe. And we stayed at a place called the something Yacht Club, and he goes, "Oh, that sounds impressive. Are, are, are we going to stay on the water in a yacht?" You know, he's right. British, so he's very naive. Right. And and I go, "No, actually, John, it's not what it sounds like." And so we got there, and it was a trailer, kind of trailer park <laughs> of old mobile homes. Was nice. the Yacht Club and land yacht? Land yacht. So, okay, we got so, yes. That You rent one of these things and they were old, beaten up, 50s for the most part. And and my friend John got very excited when we got there because he, he did a quick tour. and You get into it, and the whole thing creaks and it rocks. And, and he goes into the bathroom and he, he runs out and he goes, Jeff, I've got to show you something. Come look at this. And we went into the bathroom and the tub, it was a plastic bathtub, had been stuck back together with duct tape because it had cracked. Wow. Maybe from being hit by a meteorite
1: <laughs> there you or go.
0: falling satellite debris.
1: Or from the fact that those things are the uh, the best host to insect nests of anything that you can imagine. Oh, yeah. Aren't they? So tell me a little bit about, uh, uh, thank you very much for your, your rundown on Tangong. And oh, uh, I would love to talk to you afterwards. I'd I'd love to yes. uh, hear a little bit about what your upcoming plans are. What what have you got on the burners?
0: Ah, uh, with pleasure, Rod. Well, as as you know, I'm a I'm a fellow author, and I am I'm working on my fourth book, which is actually a photography book, and it is called Empirical Worlds. And I have photographed a hundred academics and scientists and friends of scientists. And I know that you know about this project because you. The famous Rod Pyle are one of my subjects, And honored to be so. And may I say what a dashing subject you were when I photographed you in Pasadena. You're way so too kind, the, and
1: I emphasise the word. Too, no, no, because- no,
0: it's true, it's true, it's true. Very dashing, very, uh, very statesman-like, very Richard Burton-like. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, if your viewers don't know what you look like, it's a very imposing gentleman. So my point of this is, I wanted to draw attention to to the marvelous personalities in science, and I, I think. Maybe the world at large has a tendency to to stereotype scientists and academics as 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 a, as a dull person who sits in a lab in a, in, a, in a lab coat, and that is just so not true. And I, I traveled far and I went out of my way to find people who were doing particularly unusual and interesting things in science. So, empirical world will be published later this year by Stingate Press. You're a part of it, and I depart on an epic meteorite expedition of my own. Soon, I am traveling to the Sahara Desert with my great friend and co-host of the Meteorite Men television series that we did for Science Channel, Steve Arnold, and we are going meteorite hunting in the Sahara, and it is our 21st anniversary expedition, first expedition we made together, was 21 years ago, this spring to the Atacama Desert in Chile.
1: That's incredible. Now, how long are you going to be in the Sahara?
0: It's, uh, well, I'm I'm on the road for three weeks, but we will be in the Sahara for eight days. And we're going far into the Sahara. This is not just a little camel ride thing. We're going where almost no meteorite hunter dares to tread. Although, hopefully. Yeah, no
1: I'm the guy that, that ends up going to the edge of the Sahara where the official white line is painted on the cement that separates the parking lot from the desert and steps into it about a quarter mile and says, I was there. So that's not the kind of trip you're doing, clearly.
0: No, that, that, there's nothing wrong with that. You're still in a tiny minority of adventurers. That's uh, that's something that uh, sort of it's a bucket list thing for me. I've I've been to Africa before, but I have actually not been meteorite hunting in the Sahara, so that is a first for me. And immediately after that, I will be journeying to my old hometown of London, England, where I shall be speaking at the Space Rocks arts and science event at the O2 Dome, O2 Arena in London on Earth Day, April 22nd, along with astronaut Tim Peake and astronomer Nick Howes and the European wing of my company, Aerolite Meteorites UK, will be exhibiting. I'm so excited about this. I've always loved the. it was called the Millennium Dome. It was built and now it's the O2 Dome. So I've always loved that structure. I think it's uh, it's very typical of of innovation in british architecture and my friend and colleague mark McCochran, who is the senior science advisor for the european space agency is one of the organisers of this and, and he's a he's a great arts enthusiast as well as being a science genius so i'm a, I, you, you you know me well enough to know rod that i'm a big fan of combining the arts and sciences into multidisciplinary events so so i'm i'm thrilled and uh, if anyone's interested, it's spacerocksofficial.com, dot com, or just do a search for Space Rocks London. Got rock stars, astronauts, and space rock stars, rock stars, space rock stars. I don't know. There's a good joke in there somewhere. You're going to have to help me with that one. Well, I'm just, I'm, I'm thrilled for
1: you that all this is happening, and, and you're a leader in combining arts and sciences and, and STEM and so forth. And we applaud that. Well, and you, uh, please say hi to Nick House, and you see him, who we both know from. I Space Fest will, will be in July and I will see you in May at the International Space Development Conference where you're going to be speaking and moderating and hosting a number of things and God bless you on my media panel.
0: I absolutely cannot It'll be wait great. to appear in public with you. It'll that that'll that'll be a, an enjoyable thing and I'm sure you mention this from time to time but your listeners who are interested, it's the, the National Space Society is the sponsor of the In- International Space Development Conference and it's May 24th through 27. And if you go to ISS, <laughs> I <beg your> pardon. <laughs> that's the International Space Station. If you go to nss.org, you know, these science space acronyms, we get we get confused. It's all the radiation. Well, And, and by the way, nss. now it's
1: space.nss.org because we got our new website up. So, Excellent. so yeah, wow, I I, I have impressed. been pushing that, but it's good to hear it from you because you're on the hold on. Let me get this set up right, board of governors, and that's very
0: important. Oh, I, I like that. Can, when when you when you broadcast the episode, can you put a big kind of echo like board <laughs> governors, of, governors, 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 governors? Yeah, I'll do that. I'll do that. Um,
1: and, but that is that is something that not a lot of people are are elevated to,
0: and um, so we're we're rightfully impressed. Well, thank you. It is a great honor to help to be charged with the with the task of helping to spread the word about the importance of space exploration and I'm sure this is a topic that you talk about frequently on your show but if we don't get out there and become a space a space-faring race we are doomed sooner or later whether it be through natural catastrophe or man-made catastrophe whether the sun expands to swallow us up or we get hit by a giant asteroid Civilization on Earth will end at some point if we don't get out there. So if you care about your pensions long term, I'm going into you know a few millennia down the road, like your multi-million great-great-great-grandchildren's pensions, you should support space travel. For without it, we shall be next to nothing.
1: Well, and, and I hope my pension lasts one-tenth that long. Thank you very much for coming on. Right. And uh, <laughs> I hope to talk to you when you get back from the Sahara. I'd love to hear about that trip. You can get more information on the National Space Society at their website, space.nss.org, or the conference at isdc2018.nss.org. Or you can just go to my website and buy a bunch of books. That always works for me. Actually, you can't buy books there. I think that's kind of tacky. But you can buy them from Amazon and barnesandnoble.com. Thanks for joining us. And always remember, be humble for your made of Earth. Be noble for your made of stars. See you next time.